Welcome to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. In this program, we explore the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church. Every week, I have a different guest. We talk about liturgy, literature, architecture, music, church history. We have converts tell their story of why they came home to Rome and appreciate the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church. Today, my guest is my friend Christian LeBlanc. Christian's an architect here in Greenville, South Carolina. He's also a catechist at St. Mary's Catholic Church, and the author of the book, The Bible Tells Me So, in which he explains his methodology and also gives a lot of great ideas for teaching the faith to sixth graders. Welcome, Christian, to More Christianity. Hi there, Father. Christian, we're talking about teaching young children the faith, and probably catechesis and how we share the faith with the next generation is one of the most debated subjects in the Church. Do you ever see that there's two extremes of ideas about catechesis? Yes, I would say probably that that on on one hand there's the Jesus loves me and it's very cozy and sweet, and then on the other hand there's the sort of a didactic. You will memorize these things, you will learn these things. I'm pulling up my Baltimore Catechism, and you're going to repeat all of this. Okay, so kind of like two extremes of of theory about this. That one is it's all about relationship, it's all about community, it's all about showing Jesus love in the world and so forth. And then the other one, which is all content-based, memorize this stuff, kids, and then you'll have the faith. What's the strength of both of those extremes? Well, I, I'd say, particularly with reference to the to the children that we educate or bring to, to Jesus in the upstate, is I suppose there has to be an emotional component that is a faith reason, and there also has to be the, the rational component as well. And my experience is that both of those things, when they are fused and taught as a single thing at the same time, all the time, you get a better result with the children. So you're trying to, to combine the two together, because obviously if you go to one extreme or the other, you're going to lose something. If everything is relationship and puppy dogs and kittens and feeling good about Jesus and so forth, there's not any real solid content there. On the other hand, if it's all content, it's all head and no heart. Now, how long have you been um, a catechist with uh, sixth graders? I think this will be my, my ninth year of teaching sixth grade. Did you choose to teach sixth graders, or did the DRE simply say, we have a spot, you can fill it? Yes, I, w- I was shanghaied against my will into mm-hmm. teaching sixth grade. My wife and I had been teaching adult ed and RCA for four years, and we enjoyed dealing with, with grown-ups, of course, and their ability to grasp concepts and so forth. And I actually kind of was afraid of teaching sixth graders because I was afraid that they really wouldn't know very much or I would have to dumb down my content to teach sixth graders. Right. I'm, I'm always astounded when I do start working with children, uh, high schoolers, middle schoolers, elementary school. They're smart. <laughs> and, you know, they're they're quick and they're curious. And so you don't have to dumb things down. No. The, the truth is the shock was within probably my, my third class teaching sixth graders. I went home and told my wife, my word, I, am, I, I don't think I ever want to teach an adult again. The, the children are much more ready to learn about God. Right. They're, they're becoming aware of themselves in an intellectual way. They still have the innocence of children. They want to cooperate. They want to do well. They respond when you praise them. It's like pouring water onto a dry sponge. Right. And, and the 
uh, natural enthusiasm of children and the natural curiosity and joyfulness and innocence is there. And that's one of the great joys of working with children. It reminds me of what's called the Bosco method after St. John Bosco. You remember St. John Bosco in the 19th century in the great slums of Italy founded orphanages and boys' homes and schools and did a, a wonderful work with the kids right there in the, the most difficult areas. And he has a beautiful philosophy about about children and about working with children. The Bosco method is, is pretty much common sense, but it has as its first principle that children are basically good. God created us in his image and that image is wounded by sin, but it, it, it's essentially good. The second thing out of that is we have out of this goodness a an innate desire for what is good, an innate drive towards finding what is good, an innate thirst and hunger for love, an innate thirst and hunger for what's beautiful and good and true. And John Bosco says that educators, parents, those working with children need to capitalize on that that natural desire which is there and to draw the child on. The third principle is because of this desire for good and for love, the child actually wants to please you. Yeah, they do. It's just remarkable. I think once you become a parent, every child looks like your child. And when I went into the sixth grade classroom, all the children look like my children. Right. And I treated them like I would treat my own children because I love them and I expected things from them. Mm -hmm. And they were happy to meet the standards and give me those things back. And I would praise them the way I praise my own children. And the relationship was just this, it was just splendid. It was so wonderful. And so Bosco, like you're saying, draws the child on through his natural desire, draws the child on through his natural curiosity, draws the child on through this natural desire for love and to please the adult. And then he says to his brothers who are teaching in schools, he says, only after you've tried everything with encouragement and with love and with consolation and with gentleness, do you even begin to hint that there might be a negative sanction of some sort. And even that negative sanction is is applied with great reluctance and, and great gentleness to the child. I think I was so excited by this when I first learned about it because there's an awful lot of educational principles and, and, and formation principles, both in the Catholic Church and in, in the society generally, which doesn't match up with that. That's right. My impression was, was the way I have been teaching the children is not so much structured in the normal classroom sense or the normal educational sense or a normal curriculum, but rather there are things that have motivated me about Jesus, things that have motivated me about, in my life about the church. I want the children to know those things. I want them to see that they have changed my life. I want them to understand that this can change your life too without preaching to them that, now class, this has changed my life, but rather through the, the intensity and the, the, the genuineness of what I am saying to them is that I never say anything to the kids I don't believe. Okay, so your enthusiasm for the faith, your personal commitment to the faith, your intellectual searching about the faith is really functioning kind of like a, a magnet to theirs. So that as the teacher, it's not simply, you're saying it's not simply a matter of here, kids, learn this stuff for the test on Friday, <laughs> but, but instead you're, you're a magnet to their curiosity and longing to learn. And so the two draw together and that's maybe how the educational process happens. Yes. And, and I think probably what characterizes my class more than anything is that I ask the kids constant questions in probably a 55-minute class, I'm asking 50 questions. Right. Why did Jesus do this? Why didn't he do that? Why did Noah do that? Why did Mary do this? 
if this were you, why would you have done that? And I oblige them to think on their own two feet and give me answers. If it's not quite the right answer, I'll say, oh, darling, that's a, that's a good answer. That's not quite what I'm looking for. Can mm-hmm. somebody give me a different answer? And it's very much presenting a framework where the children can do as much of their own thinking as they can and be guided to the right conclusions. I rarely give the children an answer. God and the faith are the most interesting things that I can think of to spend my time on. And so if I communicate how I find those things compelling and interesting and fascinating, the children are pulled into that out of their own native curiosity. You're listening to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. Today my guest is Christian LeBlanc, the author of The Bible Tells Me So, a fantastic new resource for catechizing sixth graders. Christian, tell our listeners where they can obtain your book. My book, The Bible Tells Me So, a year of catechizing directly from Scripture, can be most directly obtained by going to my blog, Smaller Manhattans. All you need to do is Google on Smaller Manhattans. There's nothing else on planet Earth with that name and you will see uh, an image of my book, and you just click on that. Go to Christian's blog, Smaller Manhattans, learn about his work as a catechist, where he blogs there regularly, uh, and check out his book. The nice thing about the book, Christian, I found, is that you have written it in a a very non-theoretical style. You just jump in and give us week-by-week catechesis. Is it, what, about 50 weeks of, of catechesis? 29 weeks. Oh, 29 weeks of catechesis. And you write with a kind of stream of consciousness, like, this is what I'm telling the kids up front, and your enthusiasm and your joy about your content actually comes through. I want to come back to that content in, in just a minute, but talk a little bit further about this whole idea of catechesis and what we're trying to communicate. It struck me when I was working with the eighth graders in our parish with confirmation, some of them said to the teacher, why do we have to do this? Because we're not going to be doing religion in high school next year. And it dawned on me, because they were in the classroom behind a desk with a teacher up front and a whiteboard there and a textbook, that they were treating their confirmation prep, despite our best efforts, they were treating their confirmation prep as another subject in school. And so many of our school subjects in in our modern American approach to education are kind of compartmentalized. The bell rings and you go and study algebra for 45 minutes, whether you need to or not, whether you like it or not, because... Quite frankly, you have to pass the test on Friday, you have to try to get a B average, and you have to try to finish at the end of the year, close the algebra book, and never see algebra again. And so here they were treating their religious education with that same mentality, and who could blame them? Because it was done in a classroom with a textbook, with a teacher up front, sitting there, reading, doing homework, filling in some worksheets, just like all the other subjects. And so their attitude to their their confirmation prep, not just their religious ed, was whew, it's May, I got through that, I'm going to close the the book, put that away, and never have to do that again. And then when the bishop came and confirmed them at the end of their eighth grade class, which is when they were graduating from eighth grade anyway, it was all of a piece. You could see in their minds, they were thinking, great, that religious stuff's all done now, I can go to high school and forget about all that. And so instead of that approach in which we're just communicating book knowledge to kids and, and calling that catechesis, instead, you're trying to get past all of that and include all the necessary content, but delivered in a way which is more immediate and personal and accessible by sharing your own experience. Now, what particular area of of content are you covering in sixth grade? What we're doing in sixth grade, and and this is specific to to my class because we're not using a textbook, is my goal is to give the children a complete foundation framework 
for how the Bible and Catholicism fit together. Mm-hmm. First half of the year, we cover the Old Testament going straight through, all the way from Genesis to the, to the end of the Old Testament. The second half of the year, we start with the Gospels, go all the way through Revelations, hitting all the Catholic points as we have time for. Mm-hmm. And then in the last three classes, we learn about the Mass directly out of the Missalette and drawing in all the biblical threads that we have learned about in the prior classes into those last three classes. So the biblical knowledge they're accumulating through the old study of the Old Testament and the New Testament is then being woven into their experience at Mass, so their experience at Mass becomes that much richer and full. That sounds fantastic. So give us give us an example of, of what you do. Let's call, uh, pull up a story from the Old Testament, and you're teaching it to us now. What are you going to say about Passover? One of the nice things about sixth graders is that they already know a certain amount of material. Right. And so when we get to the Passover, I can say, now we've gotten to the end of all these plagues. What's the next thing that happens? And some child will say, well, Moses told everybody to kill a lamb. I'll say, yes, exactly. Tell me more about that. And they'll tell us more. And then we might read a little bit from Exodus. And the kids will tell me the story as much as they can. And then we'll explain. Now, was it important, for example, suppose you didn't want to get your doorpost messy. Was it, would it be okay to just kind of sprinkle some, some blood down on the ground? Oh, no, that wouldn't be right. Why wouldn't it be right? And they, and they tell me. Well, suppose you didn't really like lamb and you could get a pig on sale. Would that be okay? No, that wouldn't be okay. Why wouldn't that be okay? And we go into the whole issue and you see we've already drawn threads out of, of earlier sacrifices where people are sprinkled with the blood to mark them as having shared in the, in the sacrifice and having a substitutionary thing killed for them. Then when we get to the Mass... We're able to sit here and say, all right, tell me about this object at the front of the church. What is that? And they'll say, it's the altar. I'll say, what, what else is it? They'll say, mm, a table. Right. Why is it a table for the Last Supper? Why is it an altar? Because something sacrificed there. Yes, that's what altars are for. What's being sacrificed at Mass? It's the Lamb of God. And it's then the you, Lamb of God. Uh-huh. Yes. And you go, and of course, and then we, as soon as that would come up, then we would say, remind me, please, where did you first hear that phrase? <gasps> when John the Baptist said it, who did he say it about? Jesus, where was he? At the Jordan River. Yes. Tell me something else that happened at the Jordan River. That pagan man went and bathed seven times in his leprosy was clean. Yes, that's right. That was Naaman. And what does that have to do with? That has to do with baptism. Yes. And what does John the Baptist have to do with? Baptism. Yes. And that's how class works. Right. So that you're actually making the, the Bible come alive for them and for their imagination not just telling sweet little Bible stories, which they forget. It's all woven together, as it actually is in the Scriptures and in, in our church tradition. That's a fantastic approach. I I also wonder why it hasn't been done more often. Have you found you've hit on something new and fresh here, or is this something which you, you found in every catechetical textbook? Well, what happened is originally I was teaching straight from the textbook, and it was a 36-week textbook for a normal parochial school religion class. So I had to edit the content way down to cover everything. And I began to find out that I was doing better in my teaching if I used the Bible stories that supported the material that I had to cover. And eventually it got to where I was saying, well, good grief, you're using, you're using 40 or 50 Bible stories to cover the material, and it's working so much better than dealing with the textbook. And at that point, I started to look around on, on Amazon and at bookstores, anywhere that would have some kind of Bible-based catechesis that was like what I was doing. And I couldn't find anything, so I had to put my own curriculum together. Right, because one of the problems with the catechetical resources that are out there is that people have been so intent on communicating all of the doctrine, step-by-step statements of what we're supposed to believe, that they've forgotten where those beliefs actually come from. On the other hand, they're sometimes very eager to teach the Bible and 
I found largely they're, they're trying to teach it with a, a background and a context of the modern critical method. In other words, you're supposed to know about the JEDP theory if you're studying the Old Testament. It's all very academic and the synoptic problem in the New Testament. And <laughs> this is the background of all, all of the, the training materials that have been put together. And what they've forgotten is, is what the scriptures actually are. Can, can you address that a little bit? Sure. I would say that my experience with, with catechesis is that institutional catechesis, if that's, that's the phrase I use, is generally oriented around the catechism of the Catholic Church. I think that that's not quite right. I think the pride of place for books in catechesis should be the Bible. Right. And that the catechism is the support and the reference and the handmaid. It does not have a starring role. The Bible has the starring uh -huh. role. And so the Bible is being taught to the children from a Catholic worldview as I'm informed by Catholic teaching in the catechism. But the so, catechism itself doesn't come up. Almost as if the catechism is a commentary on the scriptures yes. rather than being the main textbook. That's right. Generally, my experience with the textbooks was that there would be a lot of teaching and then there would be a little bit of scripture and then there would be scripture references. But what I was finding out is if I just dispensed with all that, took the entire scriptural story, I was able to, to teach the material and also connect it thematically to other material. Yes, it's interesting because you, you know my background is as a uh, – a Bible Christian, Bible fundamentalist, very often that Protestant approach to Scripture was one in which we regarded the, the Bible as God's inspired word, but we really kind of also regarded it a bit the way Catholics regard the catechism. In other words, the Bible had been mined for proof texts for the doctrines we believed. It had also been mined for certain moral principles and moral teachings which we believed. We use certain proof texts to prove that you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that and you shouldn't be naughty like this and you, shouldn't be, you should be good like that. And then, of course, we did have the Bible stories, but they, they didn't really connect with all those other things. And so you're trying to, to put it all together. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, my, my little motto for my class is the whole faith, the whole Bible, the whole time. Everything is being taught as a unified whole, trying to pull the faith in, the drama, the Catholicism, the individual, all at one time. We forget sometimes that the Bible is actually not a list of rules and regulations. It is not primarily a source book for doctrine. It's a story of people's engagements with God from Adam and Eve and Father Abraham right through to the apostles. It's a story of man's sinfulness and sorrow and kissing and making up and, and, and getting up and carrying on with the adventure and being confused and upset and not being able to trust God and stepping out of the boat and walking in the waves. And one of the things that impressed me recently was a reminder that the, 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 the fifth book in the New Testament is called the Acts of the Apostles. It's not called the teaching of the apostles or the doctrine of the apostles or the moral lessons which the apostles gave us for, for life. It's called the Acts of the Apostles because they got up and they, they followed Jesus Christ. They left everything and, and they lived this active life, and that's what the Bible actually is. So, Christian, you're teaching sixth graders week by week. You're obviously enthusiastic and joyful about this vocation God has given you. What are some of the memorable moments? You must have had moments where children have asked probing questions, you know, famous, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons or something like that? Have you had any memorable questions, anything you weren't able to answer? No, actually, probably as close as something I couldn't answer is when children want to ask me questions, say, like when we, we, we covered David and Bathsheba. And uh, my sixth grade terminology for their sin is, is David had married love with a woman he was not married to. Mm -hmm. And we, we go on. And one of the kids will say, well, 
well, what about that? Well, what about what? Well, you know, what about David and Bathsheba? I say, well, you mean like like the, the details of David and Bathsheba? And right. Say, I say, well, this is not a plumbing class. So you're this saying, is, wait until you have your family I, honor course, right? Well, I tell them, I say, go ask your parents. <laughs> yes, they made okay. you. Um, one of my most memorable occasions is when we get to Passover. And like I'd said earlier, we're talking, I'm asking the kids questions about the Passover. And one of them is, I said, why did they have to put the blood on the doorpost. And they say, well, this, well, that, well, the other thing. And they weren't quite getting to it. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, look, let's imagine I'm the angel of death. I fly over this house. It doesn't have any any blood on the door. What do I do? They say, you kill everything inside. And I say, I kill the firstborn, <laughs> everything, the firstborn child, the firstborn rat, the firstborn mouse, the firstborn ant. And then I fly over to this other house and there's blood on the door. I said, what does that tell me? And one of the kids said, well, it tells you not to kill anybody in that in that house. I said, yes, but why does it tell me not to mm-hmm. kill anyone? One of the kids says, because it shows you that something else has already been killed there. Right. I said, yes. And that way the kids draw the, draw the conclusion on their own about the substitutionary mm-hmm. sacrifice mm-hmm. of the lamb. Then because they have thought of their own initiative, I'll, I'll praise them to death. Say, genius at work, you figured it out. Yes, something's already been killed here. Why does it matter that someone else is, something else is killed here? Mm-hmm. And they'll tether it back to Abraham. Abraham and Isaac and the ram. Then when we get to the mass, they can pull those threads out about Abraham and Isaac and right. the Passover into the mass and how Jesus died for us in the same way. Right. So really, in many ways, the Old Testament is a kind of riddle to be figured out. It's a, a map to be read, and you're engaging their curiosity and imagination, helping yes. them to do that and then make the connection when they go to mass with their parents. What kind of feedback have you had from their parents? Have they, as have the parents said they've actually learned something as well? Yes, in fact, that's the children's homework. Mm-hmm. Uh, the kids figure out probably within the, by the third class that they are learning things their parents don't know. Right. And I tell them at the beginning of the year, your homework is to evangelize your parents first. <laughs> um, I make it very explicit in the very first class about the word evangelios, what it comes from, how it relates to mm-hmm. angel and message and messenger. Your job, children, is to evangelize the first people you will evangelize are your parents. Mm-hmm. And yes, I will run into parents at Mass uh, years later after I've taught their child, and they'll say, oh, hi, hi, Strata Pops. That's my nickname in class. Mm-hmm. Hi, Strata Pops. How are you? Fine. We know I, it was just such a wonderful time, you know, when you're, you were teaching my children, and I learned so much from them. Mm-hmm. I said, well, that's, that was their job. Their job was to teach you. You're listening to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. My guest today is Kristen LeBlanc, the author of a wonderful new resource for catechizing sixth graders, The Bible Tells Me So. You can find that at his blog, which is called Smaller Manhattans. I encourage you also to go and visit my blog, Standing on My Head. You can connect there to listen to our archive programs. You can browse my books. You can be in touch. Christian, in talking about these uh, wonderful kids that you're working with and the effects of it to their families, what kind of an effect do you think that this is having on the sixth graders' budding spiritual awareness? They're going to be going forward for confirmation in a year or two. How does that hold hands and connect in with the sacramental life of the church? You've spoken about how it connects with going to Mass. How is that connecting then with the experience we expect for them as they move forward to Confirmation? Well, with respect to Confirmation and all the sacraments, one of the the steady themes that I emphasize during our, our year of Bible study is how God's grace in the Bible already runs through physical media. Uh, one of the very first things we deal with is Moses striking the rock or Moses extending his staff over the Nile River. And I asked him, do you think if Moses had forgotten his stick that he could just go slap the rock with his hand? No, no. Why not? 
and they have to think about that. They say, because God told him to use the stick. Say, so yes, you have to do it God's way, not your way. The other thing is that somehow God is mediating and sending his power through the stick. And when we get to Naaman bathing in the Jordan River, we say, do you think Naaman could have stood and pretended to wash off without getting in that dirty old muddy river? No, he had to get in the water. What was it about the water? Well, God healed him through the water. Yes. What does this remind you of? What sacrament? Baptism. Yes, good children. Now, if a baby were going to get baptized, would it be okay to pour vinegar on the baby or Coke? No. Why? Because you have to have the water. Say, yes, the water and the spirit together. The body and the soul go together. Faith and works go together. And so you're pulling these out of the Bible stories and also showing that in that way that history matters, that people matter, and that God's involved in the lives of real individuals through the great stories of Scripture and the stories of the church. Do you weave in the stories of the saints? Do you, do you weave in the, the different – do they have name saints or do, how, how do you deal with that aspect of uh, church life? We deal with saints fairly briefly. We will deal with, the, with their deeds as they come up in the Bible. Mm-hmm. I don't really have time to deal with them outside of when they show up in the Bible. But as an example, for, uh, we talk about uh, Elisha's bones and, of course, how Elisha's bones, that God's healing power flows through the bones into a dead man and brings him back to life. Then from there we go, I have a chicken bone. I pull it out. I say, imagine that this is Elisha's bone and talk about that it would still have healing power. Mm-hmm. And then we extend that to relics. Okay. And we talk about relics and saints' relics, and that's why Catholicism has such respect for relics and takes them so seriously because we can see from this Old Testament miracle that God is already working through mm-hmm physical aspects of human beings. And then we expand that into saints briefly. Otherwise, we're just dealing with the saints as, as, as they come up, usually in the, old, in the New Testament. Our time's drawing to a close. I, I just want to ask you another important question. From what you've, uh, your experience now in, in, in a number of years teaching sixth graders and sharing the scriptures with them, sharing their faith with them, sharing your enthusiasm and your love for the Lord w- with them, what lessons have you learned which can be applied to the great need for evangelization generally? We're talking about the new evangelization. Let's say if you, were, you and your wife were going to go back to teaching RCIA, what would you bring into the RCIA lessons that you've learned from your teaching? I would essentially be doing the same thing that I'm doing with the sixth graders. There's really nothing about the content in the sixth grade class that isn't operating at, a, at an adult level, honest to goodness. Mm-hmm. If I were teaching adults, if I were teaching RCIA again, we would probably do pretty much the same thing. A lot of Socratic method, a lot of however much you already know, tell it to me. You think of the answers. You do your own figuring out because when you have to work, that's the wonderful thing about the Bible in its raw state is that it doesn't present you the information. It winds around and you have to think and work and put out effort and go through wrong answers. But then the knowledge is yours and it has meaning because it wasn't given to you. I think of how Jesus so often just asked people questions and made them work for the information. Right, to find the answer. Yes. And, and I think, number one, never say anything that you don't absolutely believe and that has changed your life in some way or changed your worldview in some way. Uh, ask as many questions as you can. Expect a lot. And leave the rest up to the Holy Spirit so he can keep his job. Okay. And if there's somebody out there listening who has been asked, uh, having their arm twisted right now to be, to be a catechist, and they're thinking, oh, I can't do that. I don't know enough. I won't have all the answers. I've never done this before. Uh, what's your encouragement to them? The first thing is that, yes, all those things are absolutely true. And the other thing that's absolutely true is the Holy Spirit will buck you up. Mm-hmm. People approach a lot of things with fear. I approached it with fear. Then you find out, my goodness, I can do this. 
my goodness, people come to class freely and enjoy it. Now, if anybody out there were being asked to be a catechist and were afraid, I would love to talk to you. And your blog, Smaller Manhattans, is where you actually blog about catechesis and blog about your sixth graders. And if you'd like to learn more about Christian and his book, go to his blog, Smaller Manhattan, be in touch with him, ask questions, and he'll give you some guidance. You're listening to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. Christian, thank you for joining us.